Merry Christmas, guys. I know we're six days past Christmas, but we're still in the holiday season. I hope you guys had a good one. And this will be the last time I get to talk this year. You guys won't hear me again until next year, so <laughs> you can have a laugh at that. I don't know if you guys ever have New Year's resolutions. I'm not the biggest fan of them. Sometimes I think we get too caught up in the resolution aspect and we try to do more than we're capable. We make this big, big lofty goal that we tackle at first and then it's just too much and we get sick of it and then we give up and then we're almost worse off than we were before. So instead of New Year's resolutions, I like to just keep on pressing on. I know Pastor Bob in his uh, last message with Philippians We were talking about that. Press on, press on. But one sort of resolution I have, or one thing I want to continue, is reading books. Do you guys like to read books? Have any of you guys read like a full series? There's a bunch of bestseller series out there. Uh, Here's the top five. Harry Potter, obviously, is number one on the list, with 600 million copies being sold. And the total word count of all the seven books in the series, and yes, when I was in middle school, high school, I read all seven, 1,084,170 words through the whole series. That's a long series. A big commitment to read all of that. I never read The Lord of the Rings. I watched the movies. They weren't the greatest. I'm sorry. I mean, too much hype. I read the first two books, The Chronicles of Narnia, 345,000 words total. Twilight Saga, I'm not sure anyone reads those. Percy Jackson and the Olympians, this was my favorite series of all time. When I was in high school, I binged this like crazy. And I did not know how long the series was until I looked it up a few days ago, but two and a half million words total. That's a lot of words. It's a huge commitment. It's way more than Harry Potter's series, and Harry Potter is pretty long. So why is it that we can read these long books. We can read these long series, and we don't get bored. We're fascinated. We're we're engrossed in the story. We love it, and we keep on wanting to read more and more and more. I was there for four hours, five hours reading some of these books because they're just that great. But the best-selling book of all time is the Bible. The Bible has five to seven billion copies sold worldwide. It's been translated into almost 4,000 languages. We're getting there. There's a lot of smart people doing a lot of work to have that happen. The Bible has a total of 764,358 words, on average, depending on your translation. King James Version has a heck of a lot more words than the translation we use, NLT or NIV. Any thought-for-thought translation is going to be less because it has a concise telling of a story rather than a word-for-word telling. 764,000 seems like a lot, but in comparison, it's only, it's 30% shorter than the whole Harry Potter series, and it's one-third of the length of my favorite series, Percy Jackson and the Olympians. And I was able to read those in high school, so the Bible is a no-brainer. It took me a long time to read through the whole Bible. I don't know if any of you guys have ever tried reading your Bible, New Year's Resolution, you get through Genesis, Exodus, Maybe you stop in the next book and you're like, oh, all these names and numbers and genealogies, I'm just going to quit. And then you pick it up next year, or maybe six months down the road, you try to start again. And we play this game of catch-up and we never get finished. I don't like to do resolutions. I like to just continue and press on. So if you stopped at Genesis, it's fine. Keep on reading from there. 
If you got through the Pentateuch, the five books of the Old Testament, then go to the next book. Go to Joshua. Keep on pressing on. Don't have a lofty goal. Don't think that you're going to read through the Bible all in one go and all in one step, and you're going to get done in three months. I know there's some Bible plans to get through the Bible in three months. Just make a goal that's bite-sized, that you can handle, that you can do, and just keep on pressing on and get through it. It's my biggest piece of advice for you. So if you would calculate all the words of the Bible and you would take an average words per minute uh, reading speed of 250, you could theoretically get to the Bible in 51 hours. So that's two days, if I can do my math right, two days and three hours. Can you guys do that math in your head? (laughs) Two days and three hours to read through the whole Bible. That's without sleeping, without eating, without going to the bathroom, without going on your phone, just reading straight through it. And by day, if you read every single day and you want to get finished by the end of the year, you only have to read about eight and a half minutes a day. So think about things that you do on a day-to-day basis that take up about eight and a half minutes. I thought of a few things, and plus it's leap year this year, so we have one extra day. So if you miss one, you got a day to catch up there. How long does it take to brush your teeth? Two minutes is what the doctors say, two minutes twice a day. And do you guys floss? That takes some time too, right? Maybe like a minute and a half, two minutes. Some of you guys are really crazy and Maybe four minutes, I don't know. And how many times do you wash your hands a day? Hopefully, maybe four or five, maybe some of you less. Washing your hands takes time. If you totaled all this, it's kind of about eight and a half minutes. So by my math, you can skip brushing your teeth, you can skip flossing, you can skip washing your hands, and that will buy you enough time to read your Bible every day. So if you're looking for something to take out of your busy schedule, there you go. You don't need to brush your teeth. You don't need to wash your hands. Just read your Bible. You guys are going to start to take me seriously. I know last time I was up here, I talked about not showering. Now I'm talking about dental hygiene. No, I'm kidding. I brush my teeth twice a week, at least. (laughs) So I know that's silly to talk about skipping dental hygiene, your dental health, in order to read the Bible. But think about how important it is that we put aside time to take care of your teeth. Because you only get one set of those. And how much more important is your spiritual health than your dental health? And I know it's silly to skip washing your hands because you want clean hands. Germs, bacteria cause you to get sick more frequently. But how much more important is it to have a clean conscience before God than clean hands? So, what are some other practical things we can do to make eight and a half minutes of time to read the Bible? Obviously, skipping out and brushing your teeth isn't really feasible. What about the snooze button? Any of you guys hit the snooze button each morning? Or do you just wake up right on time? No, I like to hit the snooze button at least twice. It's the best invention ever, in my opinion. The average person snoozes for 24 minutes before they actually get out of bed, hitting the snooze button at least twice. It's a crazy statistic, and maybe some of you guys are like, no, I snooze for at least 40 minutes. (laughs) Maybe some of you guys get out of bed within five. Who knows? But those are the averages. What about watching TV? The average American spends four hours watching TV. That's kind of crazy to imagine that. Four 
hours watching TV. Do any of you guys watch more than that per day, you think, if you're honest? Maybe. I know it's embarrassing to talk about, but four hours watching TV. And some of you guys are thinking to yourself, I don't watch four hours. I only watch like two episodes. But be honest, how many times have you said, I'm going to stop right after this episode's done, and then that autoplay feature kicks on. you got five seconds to decide, and you're like, ah, what's one more? And you play the next one. And then it starts to play the next one again, and you're like, okay, I'm only going to watch five minutes. I'm just going to watch the intro. You get done with the intro, and you're like, well, I'm already here. I might as well continue. And that's how these things happen. They progress, and you get sucked into watching hours and hours of TV. What about social media? You guys have phones? I had to use my phone for a few minutes there because my tablet is updating. How many hours are you on your phone every single day? Well, the average person, the average American, spends two and a half hours on social media every day. I think the number is way higher, especially if you factor in people that don't use their phones at all. They kind of take that statistic way down. And the people that are on social media, I think they're on way more than two and a half hours. But 70% of that two and a half hours, 70% of that time is actually right before bed. Right before you go to bed, you're spending the most amount of time on social media. You're checking it throughout the day, obviously. And then a lot of people, it's uh, 55% of people, tend to check their phone first thing in the morning. They tend to check Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever those are, first thing in the morning. So basically, social media, for a lot of people in the world, is the first thing you see before you get up, the last thing you see before you go to bed. Isn't that crazy? So your whole world revolves around social media. Your whole world revolves around your phone. And you get sucked into it. And I know there's a lot of pros to social media. Social media connects us all together. It connects us with family that are out of states. We can talk to them. We can FaceTime with them. Um, It's a really, really cool feature that we can talk to people around the world in an instant. But how many guys know that social media can make you feel lonely and depressed, and disconnected from the world. You can go on social media, you can see all the pictures of everyone doing all these crazy things, going mountain climbing and snowboarding, and you're just like, well, I don't do those things. I just sit at home and lounge around. And yeah, that's just, mm, I wish I could be like that person. It gets you all depressed. So you don't want to be addicted to social media. It can be good in moderation, but you don't want to take it too far. You don't want to be a zombie attached to this thing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.12, you can say I'm allowed to do anything. And that's true, but not everything is good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. So don't be enslaved by your phone. Don't be enslaved by TV shows. Don't be enslaved by hitting the snooze button. Whatever it is that's your addiction, and there's way more than that. I mean, gambling and eating out too much, things like that. You can be addicted to things. Paul says, even though I'm allowed to do anything, by the grace of God, I'm forgiven. Don't be a slave to anything. Only be a servant to God. Don't be a slave to the world. All right, so today we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics, which is the Bible. That's the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. You guys know that song? Yeah, my mom used to sing that to me when I was a kid, along with Jesus Loves Me, This I Know. Great songs. I'm not going to sing it for you. I'm not Travis. (laughs) But it just made me think about what we're talking about today. The Bible. We stand firm on the Word of God. 
We don't give, we don't recede, we don't compromise. We stand by the Bible as the word of God because it's true. So who here has a physical Bible with you today? You can raise it up high, be proud. Who's got a physical Bible? Paper, leather, maybe it's torn up. See, I've got a phone. I'm kind of a tech-savvy person. I don't like to have a physical Bible. I like to have my app with me so I can go to any translation in the world in the blink of an eye. I can cross-reference verses. Anyways, I'm not saying I'm better than you. Just <laughs> technology is cool. Except when it has to update right in the middle of worship. So I thought about doing a poll because there's a lot of polls out there about churchgoers worldwide or churchgoers in America, but I kind of wanted to do one with our church congregation. So I'll get a raise of hands, but I'm going to preface before we do it. If you have been in a rut lately, but it's abnormal for you, it just kind of caught you by surprise, you were reading the Bible regularly, but now you've kind of just taken a break from it, but you're planning on getting back in the wagon, you can still answer yes to this, okay? Does that make sense? So if you're taking a break, if you've been sidetracked, but normally you're on schedule, I want you to raise your hands. Who reads their Bible at least once a week? Once a week. All right, that's good. That's good. And keep your hands in the air if you read your Bible at least four times a week. What about five? What about six? What about seven? That's all right. That's cool. So uh, there's going to be a pie chart on the screen of who actually reads their Bibles. Uh, Lifeway Research surveyed 1,000 Americans, and here's what they found. Only one in five people have read through the entire Bible. One in five. 50% in active worship attenders, so those of you actually coming to church, Actively, every single week, usually around 50% of you have read through your entire Bible. 13% of those who attend worship services at least once a month pick up your Bible every single day. And that goes up to 39% if you attend worship services at least once a month. And it's, it's pretty crazy. We've been talking about uh, Pastor Travis and Pastor Bob. Uh, a lot of people consider like once a month, I think it was once a month, you're actually an active attender. Like, you're a part of this church. This is your church. Once a month, this is active for me. And I'm not going to bash anyone that's like that, but I really think you need to be every week. Uh, Paul talks about don't skip out on church like some people do. Actually show up to the congregation where the worship gathering is taking place. Where other Christian brothers and sisters are gathering, that's where you should be. I don't know, just my opinion. Study by Gallup shows that in evangelical churches throughout the United States, 36% of those who ch- uh, attend church weekly indicate that they believe Jesus Christ is the only way into heaven. So think about that. Two-thirds, almost two-thirds of people who attend church don't really believe Jesus Christ is the only way to get to heaven. They believe other religions, other roads out there, other pathways. Uh, you can believe in whatever you want. I believe in God. You can believe what you want. Two-thirds, nearly. Only one-third of Christians actually stick to their guns and hold to what the Bible says, that Jesus Christ is the only way, only truth, only life. 22% 
believe the Bible is fully inspired by God himself. One in four American Christians believe the Bible to be a book written by mere men, and not at all the word of God. So that's basically a quarter. 25%, 25%. One believes the Bible is authoritative, one believes it's not. What about the other 50%? The other 50% are kind of wishy-washy, they don't know what to decide. They kind of trust the Bible, they kind of don't trust the Bible. They're unsure. 25% says the Bible is authoritative, 25% says it's not. Where do you stand? So I think we need to take our Bibles off the shelf. And that's the point of this message. We need to get those dusty Bibles off the shelf and actually read them. So you guys that have your physical Bibles, that's great. If you don't have a physical Bible, we have Bibles available for free in the foyer. You can pick one up on your way out. If you need one, uh, talk to someone in Guest Central about that, or honestly, just grab it. They're free for the taking. And there's plenty of Bibles on your phone. Uh, YouVersion is a great app. There's basically infinite number of translations you can use on that app, and they're all great. And if you want to read in Spanish or German or whatever, there's those languages on there as well. So I understand there's lots of people in this room that are at different walks and stages of life. I know for some of you, you're the mature Christian, and you're like, Pastor Donnie, what's the point of talking about this? Like, we all believe in the Bible. We've read our Bible fully. We read our Bible every day. Why are you even mentioning this stuff? Like, you're preaching to the choir, right? I understand, and that's great, and I respect you for that. And for you, I want to give you practical steps on how to deepen your understanding of the Bible, how to deepen your conviction that the Bible is authoritatively the Word of God, so that you will not compromise on that, and hopefully equip you with some practical uh, tidbits of information to teach the next generation of believers why you stand by the Bible. Why is it authoritative? Why do you believe it's the Word of God? Why do you believe it's inerrant? And so you can teach unbelievers as well. Some of you here are younger, and maybe a better term for that would be newer Christians. You're newer to the faith, you've just started to believe in God, or maybe you're kind of wrestling with that idea and you think you're ready for that step and you've just taken it, and you know Christ is your Lord and Savior and he died for your sins on the cross, and you have faith in him, and through that faith you're made right with God, and that's awesome. I want to welcome you. You're a brother and sister in Christ, and we celebrate that. But maybe you're unsure about some other aspects of the Bible. Maybe you're not totally convinced about X, Y, or Z. When you're reading the Bible, you're like, oh, that kind of eggs me the wrong way. I don't like hearing that. And you read the Old Testament, and you read through books like Joshua, and you're like, what do I do with this? And if that's you, I want to provide you with some wisdom, that you can indeed trust the Bible as authoritatively the Word of God that we don't compromise that it's inerrant, and I'll give you a couple evidences of that. Some of you are more like skeptical. You're testing the waters. You don't believe in Christianity. You're sitting here just, friend invited you, or you're just coming out on your own, or you're tuning in live, and I applaud you for that. I respect you. It takes a certain amount of humility to do that, to show up at a church congregation without belief and be open to listening. I respect you for that. I applaud you. I think God blesses the humble. He lifts up the humble. He opposes the proud. So stay humble. Stay seeking. Stay knocking. If you seek, you will find. If you knock, the door will be opened to you. All right. 
With that said, I want to pray real quick for those three groups of people. Dear, dear God, we thank you for being with us in this congregation today. We thank you for your sacrifice for us on the cross that you bled uh, for us. We put our hope, faith, and trust in you. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would pour out on the congregation today, that you would convict those um, who might be a little uncertain of your word and how much to trust and how much uh, they understand. Lord, speak through me. Give me wisdom. Give me boldness. And uh, Jesus' name, everyone prayed. Amen. You know, I have a habit with my youth group students. Some of you guys are here today. You know I go way over my time. I packed a lot in today's message, and I'm going to do my best to get through it. But I'm making no promises. There's a tail end I really want to get to, but I might have to push it off. Or, like my youth group students, you guys can just have me go over. That'd be great. I love doing that. So, one of my main points is why. Why should you read the Bible? It's a good question. Can't you just be a Christian and not ever read your Bible? I mean, you come to church and you hear Pastor Bob, you hear Pastor Travis and Tony Simon and whoever's up here speaking, and you're like, I'll just take them at their word. I don't need to read the Bible. They can teach me. Well, I think there's some serious concerns with that kind of logic. Uh, The Bible is basically God's love letter to humanity. He wrote this book just for you, just for me, so that we can know him deeper. And the Bible tells us everything we need to know about Jesus Christ, everything we need to know about what God wants for us, how to live a holy and just life, everything we need to know about um, God's grace, his mercy, his goodness, his gentleness, his justice, his truth. The Bible is our guidebook for life. And if you just take a person at the pulpit's word for it, I think you're selling God a little short. I mean, I think pretty lowly of myself, maybe slowly. I don't know. I can't reach down on the ground right now. But God is the best teacher in the world. The Holy Spirit is the best teacher in the world. The Bible is our measuring stick. He is our guide. Jesus is the Logos. He is the Word. He's inspired the Bible. And we read that to get to know God more. So a couple verses to draw that in. If you guys want to write this verse down, this would be, if you only write one verse down, this would be the one to write down. 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. And I'm reading out of the ESV because, just for this one verse, uh, I don't know, because I'm, I'm used to it. I memorize it in the ESV, and I always get tripped up reading the NLT for this version. Verse 15, you've been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood. He's talking to Timothy. You've been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood. And Timothy, to get a little context, he was a half-Jew. His mother was Jewish. His father was Greek. And so he would have been taught the Jewish Scriptures from childhood, just like any other Jew would. And they have given you the wisdom to teach the salvation that comes by trusting in Jesus Christ. And all Scripture is inspired by God and useful for to, to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So do you guys notice that? All scripture, all scripture is inspired by God. All scripture is useful for teaching, for correction, for reproof, 
for training people up in righteousness so that you can be equipped to do every good work God wants you to do. That's why the Bible is given to us. It's our guidebook for life. Romans 15.4, such things are written in the scriptures long ago to teach us, and the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. So the scriptures are also to give us encouragement. We're waiting for Christ's second coming. He came 2,000 years ago, died on the cross, and he said he's coming again. And sometimes people can get a little antsy. Uh, we're, we're teaching a series in Revelation with the youth group right now. And sometimes people just, it's been 2,000 years. Jesus isn't coming back. You know, we've been saying that forever and ever, and it hasn't happened. Well, the Bible is there to encourage us to keep on hoping, keep on pressing on, keep on hoping that Jesus Christ will return, because he said he would, and he said it's coming soon. But not soon as, you know, humans count soon, soon as God counts soon. Psalm 1, 1 through 3, Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand around with sinners, or join in with mockers, but they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit in each season. Their leaves neither wither, and they prosper in all they do. Question, church, do you want to prosper in all you do? Stay in the word of God. Meditate on it day and night. You'll be like a tree planted by streams of flowing water, bearing fruit in each season, and probably out of season too. The Bible nourishes us. It grows us. It enables us to bear fruit. And that's also the Holy Spirit's job, to allow us to bear fruit. Psalm 119, 11. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Do you know, reading the Bible actually helps you to not sin against God. And this is part of the thing about storing up word in your heart. I have stored up your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you, Lord. I'm memorizing scripture. I'm reading scripture. I'm comprehending and I'm processing and I'm studying it. And in the process, whenever I come across something that tempts me to sin, I see it and I say, ooh, the Bible says I shouldn't do that, right? And you don't want to do that thing. The Holy Spirit convicts you along the way. The word of God convicts you along the way. Your spirit convicts you along the way, but you're still fighting with your flesh. You can let your flesh win out. But if you listen to your spirit, the Holy Spirit, the word of God, you can press on through those challenges. You can fight off temptations. So if Bible verses aren't enough, here's a couple benefits to reading your Bible. If people engage in scriptures two times a week, uh, there was a study that showed there was little to no effect to believers compared to unbelievers. So I know I ask you guys if you read your Bible once a week, it's no diss to you. Maybe you're better, maybe you're not. Um, on average, people that read the Bible twice a week, three times a week, it doesn't really change behaviors um, comparison to an unbeliever, which is crazy to think about, right? You think if you read your Bible twice a week, you're going to be like a golden child. Um, they actually said when you get to three times a week, it's, it's like a tiny little pulse. It changes the, the bar just a tiny bit. You're pushing the needle, um, a little bit of life. But the staggering figure is once you get to four or more times a week, reading your Bible four or more times a week, you would expect a steady climb, like a gradual climb of, of being more mature, having better behaviors, resist, resisting sin, temptation. But actually what they found is four or more times a week, there was a huge jump in behaviors. 
Um, so here's nine benefits of reading your Bible at least four times a week, and I hope that you do so. One, feeling lonely drops by 30%. You guys feel lonely sometimes? Read the Bible. Uh, when I was looking at this, my cat happened to jump in my lap. And then I thought, and I wrote down in my notes, cats drop loneliness by 45%. <laughs> it's just a fact. But the thing is, they're not consistent. Sometimes your cat loves you, and sometimes they want nothing to do with you. So, reading scripture four times a week drops loneliness by 30%. Anger issues drop by 32%. If you're prone to anger, if you have a hot head, read the Bible. Anger drops 32%. Bitterness in relationships drops by 40%. Alcoholism drops by 57%. Sex outside of marriage drops 68%. Feeling spiritually stagnant drops by 60%. Viewing pornography drops by 61%. And I like number eight because Wednesday nights, I think we're taking a break. I don't know. Bill would know. Uh, We're doing an evangelism course. But number eight, sharing your faith jumps up to 200%. Just from reading your Bible four times a week. You're 200% more productive sharing your faith, which makes sense. When I was reading Percy Jackson and Olympians, when I was reading Harry Potter, I like to talk about those books all the time because I was reading them all the time. And if you're reading the Bible, you're infatuated with it, you're engrossed in the story, you have a love for God, a desire, a hunger for him, you're going to talk about the Bible, you're going to talk about your faith. It's a no-brainer. Discipling others jumps 230. And I know sometimes we kind of talk about evangelism as like a a one-and-done method, but evangelism is hand-in-hand with discipleship. You can't just offer someone salvation and say, hey, have a nice day, Merry Christmas, you know, go find a church and and plug yourself in. It works sometimes. I think God will find a way for them. But really, biblically, we're supposed to teach them to obey everything I've commanded you in the Great Commission. Make disciples of all nations, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but also teach them to do everything I commanded you. So making converts goes hand in hand with discipleship. So 200%, 230% sharing your faith and discipleship. All right. How to study the Bible. This is probably the main component that's going to be practical for most of you here. How to study the Bible. What are some practical steps to study the Bible? Um, you just read it, and you think whatever feels good. I don't know. Travis always talks about sometimes you you like open the Bible to a random page and you look at it and you put your finger down and you read the verse and you're like, oh, this is my verse. As a joke, he doesn't actually do that. But that's not a very practical method. You can't just open your Bible willy-nilly and say, oh, this is the verse for my day today. I mean, sometimes you might get a verse that's kind of weird. Like, like Judas went and killed himself. And then you read another verse that says, now go and do likewise. Not, not a very good method. Those, those don't really go together very well. It's not a good life practice. So you have to read your Bible. You have to read chunks. Uh, There's a famous quote, never read a Bible verse, because you should always read in context at least a chapter. So what are some common mishaps when it comes to studying the Bible? Um, Real quick, 2 Timothy 2.15. Paul tells Timothy, work hard so that you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains 
the word of truth. And I know we can look at that passage and we can say, oh, Timothy was a pastor, he was a leader in the church. That doesn't apply to me. Uh, I'm not expected to teach anything. Well, you know what Paul told uh, the church in the book of Hebrews? He was kind of frustrated at them because they were still on spiritual milk. All the things that were like foundation, basics, they should understand this stuff, and they weren't moving on. And he said in Hebrews 5.12, you've been believers for so long now that you ought to be teaching others. So, yes, it's a job for a pastor to teach, but it's also our job to teach as disciples. We are disciples who make disciples who make disciples. We are supposed to teach. And along with that, you should study the Bible, present your God, present yourself to God for his approval, and don't be ashamed. Don't be like one who's ashamed to correctly explain the word of truth. So study the Bible, explain the word of truth correctly, so you won't be ashamed. I wouldn't feel comfortable talking about Bible study without talking about some nerdy terms out there. Uh, terms like exegesis and eisegesis. Uh, have you guys ever heard those terms before? I hope you have. That's pretty standard in Bible study. And if we, had a, if we were in a Baptist church, this would be like grounds for church membership. Like, if you did not know these terms, you probably couldn't be a member. I don't know. I don't think they actually do that, but... They're pretty strict on their exegesis. Exegesis means to draw out or export ideas from the text. Like think of exit sign, exegesis. Using the words of the text in scripture through the lens of the original context that it was written in to determine their intent, the author's intent. So think words like exposition, explanation, analysis, uncovering what's there. Eisegesis means to draw in or to import ideas into the text. Your opinions are going into the text. You're using the text to prove your own interests, your own ideas, your own opinions. And that's never a good thing. I don't know about you guys, but I think some pretty weird stuff every day. And if I would take those opinions and put them in Scripture and be like, oh yeah, Scripture affirms my point of view, that'd be pretty messy. So think of terms like premise, presupposition, assumptions, thesis, you're putting your opinions into the text itself instead of drawing the text out. Uh, a cool little meme to make this point is uh, exegesis digs into the text. Eisegesis piles all sorts of stuff over the text. So burying the crane doesn't really make sense. You use the crane and dig stuff out. And then there's a third one called narcissus. You're a narcissist. You're full of yourself. You're, you're just always thinking every Bible verse points to you, it's all about you, it's all about me, me, myself, and I. Just a cool little term. So yes, the Bible is God's love letter to humanity, and it's written so that we can know him deeper, we can trust him more, we can be confident of Jesus Christ, all the prophecies about him, that he is our Lord and Savior, there's no one else like him. But sometimes a verse in the Bible is just descriptive of history. It's not meant to be prescriptive for your life. Like talking about Judas and after his heart, you know, betraying Jesus and he went and hung himself. That's not a prescriptive action for you to take. It's a descriptive action telling you, hey, this is just what happened. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. Doesn't mean you should sell people into slavery. It's descriptive of history. God's not approving of it. He might have been 
behind the scenes, using it for his glory, for his purpose. Like Joseph said, what you meant for evil, God meant it for good. But it's not a prescriptive thing for us to take. So what is hermeneutics? Hermeneutics is rightly dividing the word of God. It basically means a lens that you see everything through. I know some of you guys I can see are wearing glasses. I should wear glasses. I don't. I don't like them. But glasses help you see better. They're a lens to help you see. Maybe you're short-sighted and those lenses correct that short-sightedness. Maybe you're far-sighted and those lenses correct that. Um, your lenses help you to see things clearly. Sometimes you can have a wrong lens, though. I don't know if you guys ever worn your prescription way too long, and then your vision gets blurry, and you have to go to the, to the eye doctor, optometrist, and get a new set of eyeglasses because you've outgrown them. So, I don't know, to emphasize this, I have a couple quick examples. Maybe they're kind of silly, but I hope you guys get it. Uh, There's going to be a picture up there. I'm not sure what you guys see. Does anyone see a duck? Yeah? Does anyone see a rabbit? Now, do you you guys see both pictures? Yeah. I think most of you do. Some of you can't see it yet, but if you look hard enough, you can see both the duck and the rabbit. So this is kind of things in Scripture that um, they can be taken both ways. There's a lot of places in Scripture where you can look at it, And two people who are very smart, very intelligent, come with two different interpretations. They see a duck, they see a rabbit. Maybe it's both. Maybe it's a compromise in the middle. Uh, The next image. Do you guys see gold and white? Or do you see black and blue? Black and blue. This is kind of one of those, I don't think people can see both. Does anyone see both? Yeah. I don't think people can see both. This kind of blew up the internet in 2015. Some people see white gold, some people see blue and black, but you can never see both colors. And you might disagree with someone super, super hard, like, how can you see blue and black? It's definitely gold and white. Or how can you see gold and white? It's definitely blue and black. I can't believe you can't see it my way. I know there are some interpretations of scripture. There's some theories out there. I don't even want to mention it, but I will, like Calvinism, Arminianism. I know we get some heated debates over that topic. Some people just cannot see it differently, no matter how hard you fight them on it. They only see it their way, nothing at all. So a lot of places in Scripture where people come with that kind of understanding. doesn't mean it's right. It just means that's the way they see it. That's the lens. That's the hermeneutic they see things through. Uh, there's going to be another fun little picture that's kind of uh, grayed out. Or not grayed out. It's kind of weird colors. Uh, it only takes about 12 seconds. So I'll kind of do a countdown. I'll tell you guys to flip. Maybe put this on the full screen so it's clear on the live stream. So stare right into that dot, right into that black dot in the middle. Maybe another six seconds here will count down. And there's going to be something very interesting when you flip the picture, and you're all going to be like, whoa, that's amazing. All right, three, two, one. You guys see it? You guys see in color? Does it look green and brown? You can see the brown of the tree trunks and the green of the leaves. That's pretty cool, huh? So what that picture is doing is it's giving you like reverse colors of the image. So when it flips to the grayscale, your brain actually processes it in color, even though it's not in color. And the minute you move your eyes off that dot, off the focal point, you lose the picture. It's gone. I sort of think this is the way the Holy Spirit acts in our lives. 
we focus on the Holy Spirit, we're in tune with the Holy Spirit, we listen to the Holy Spirit, and we read the Word of God, and things just make sense to us. It's so clear. But the minute we take our eyes off the Holy Spirit, the minute we take our eyes off Jesus, it's gone. You guys can think of the story of Peter walking out in the water. He's looking at Jesus. He's intent on him. He believes in him. He has faith. And he starts walking on the water, and he's doing great. And then he starts to take his eyes off Jesus, and he worries about the waves and the wind, and he's just like, oh, no, it's too much for me. He falls down. Don't take your eyes off Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep in line with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will help you interpret Scripture. That's his job. That's one of the things that he promises us in Scripture, is that he will help you understand the truth. So trust the Holy Spirit. Keep your eyes on Jesus. It'll be kind of like that picture. You, you'll see it clearer. And you'll get rid of those you know, preconceived lenses, like that golden white dress or black and blue, whatever you see. One of you are wrong. But keep your eyes on Jesus. Stay in tune with the Holy Spirit. He'll teach you what's right. Proverbs 18, 17, this kind of goes in hand with what we talk about with these lenses. The one who states his case first, he seems right, until the other comes and examines him or cross-examines him. So in the court of law, someone states their case, and everyone's like, yeah, that guy's got a great point. I'm on his side. I'm on his team. And then someone else comes and cross-examines him and presents the opposite case. And then you start to wonder, oh, maybe, that's, maybe this guy's right. And they go back and forth. So don't always believe the first thing you hear. I know sometimes when I was a kid, I heard some pretty strange theories, and I believed in them. And then I heard another person say their theory, and I believed in them. And then I heard another person say their theory, and I believed in them. And you can get tossed around. It's, it's a, a jolty phenomenon. You get tossed around by all these different theories, by all these different people. You trust one friend. You trust one parent. You trust another teacher and you get jostled around. Again, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on the Holy Spirit. He will teach you what's right. So, circles of context. Uh, There's a bunch of circles of context. We're not going to talk about all these. You can see the screen. Any person who is serious about Bible study will tend to know about most of these circles of context and will actively look into them when they're studying Scripture. In my opinion, I think it's not the most necessary. I think 95% of all scripture, you probably don't need to know all these circles of context, 95% of all scripture is pretty much found in the paragraph preceding and the paragraph following whatever verse you're studying. So if there's a confusing verse, just look a couple lines above, a couple lines below. You'll usually find your answer if it's confusing. 95% of scripture, in my opinion, is like that. You just look in the context, you look before, you look after the verse, read the context, the chapter, in full, and your question will be answered. The other 4.5%, if I did my math correctly, the other 4.5%, it might help you to know a little bit about historical context and cultural context for that Bible passage. You know, some things in, in First and Second Corinthians, it's helpful to know about some of the context of the day, how they had temple prostitutes, and they were living in a lot of sexual immorality because there is a shrine there where people would visit these prostitutes, and it was a bad business, and Paul corrected them. Do you have to know that? Not really, but it helps. So 4.5% is like that. Did I do my math correctly? Am I missing something? 5%. 95% plus 4.5%. There's what? 5% left over, or half a percent left over, right? So whatever's left, in my opinion, 
I'm not speaking from any like solid statistics here, but the half percent, that little bit left over, that isn't answered from immediate context, that isn't answered from historical or cultural context, I think is usually answered by just a general framework of the Bible. You read your Bible completely, you read your Bible every day, you're in line with the Holy Spirit, you're keeping your eyes on Jesus, and those questions kind of get answered to you. Maybe not right away. Uh, There's a lot of precedent in the Bible that uh, there are some things that are too lofty, too deep for us to understand, and they're reserved for God alone. So sometimes he might not give you the answer, or sometimes we're just not ready for that yet. And God is preparing us through a season to get us ready for that thing. Might be the case. Philippians 4.13. We're going to read a couple of verses that sometimes can get taken out of context, and I won't push too hard here. I just want to throw them out there as, just so you're aware of them. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. This is the most common uh, verse that people usually tattoo on themselves. Philippians 4.13. I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength, right? Usually preceded by someone shouting this verse before they go wrestle an alligator or jump out of an airplane or do something wild or drive you know, through traffic really fast. But if you know anything about Philippians 4.13, the verse preceding it, verse 12, Paul says, I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or an empty one, with plenty or little. So he's setting some guidelines here. He's saying, hey, I have had plenty, I've had little, I've been hungry, I've been full. Whatever the situation is, I can do anything because Christ gives me strength. It doesn't mean that you can go wrestle an alligator or wrestle a bear and you can just shout, I can do all things through Christ that gives me strength. It might not apply. But if you're persecuted for your faith, you're preaching the gospel, you're bold, you're talking to your friends, you get persecuted, I think God will be there for you. I think he'll give you just enough strength to get through the day. So I'm going to skip a little bit here because I am running out of time. I promised you guys that would happen. If you guys uh, don't know this already, there's a great study method called the SOAP study method. SOAP, like the kind that you wash your hands with. S-O-A-P. So the letters stand for Scripture, Observation, Application, Prayer. So first of all, what verse stuck out to you? What Scripture stuck out to you? And you write that thing down. Let's start with our, our first verse we wrote down. 2 Timothy three fifteen through 17. That's our verse. It's sticking out to us. What do we observe from this verse? Well, a couple things I observe from the verse preceding uh, 16 and 17, verse 15. Uh, it says that he knew the scriptures from childhood. And if you know a little bit about cross-references in historical context... Timothy was a half-Jew, and so he would have known the Jewish scriptures. He would have been grown up in that whole thing. He would have learned the Torah from a very young age. He would have been tested and tried and memorized lots of scriptures, just like any Jewish boy would do. So it might help to have a little bit of historical context. Did you need to know that? No, because Paul tells you right there. He learned the scriptures from a young age. All scriptures inspired by God. I know Pastor Bob always talks about the word all. All means all in the Greek. All scripture is inspired by God. What about application? Scripture is useful, useful to teach us what is true. It points out when we are wrong. It shows us what is right. 
God uses scriptures to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So those are some ways we can apply this verse. That all scripture is inspired by God. That's what we observe. We know that. And what can it do in our lives? How can we apply it? It's useful for teaching, for rebuke, for training righteousness, so that we, the church, can be equipped to do every good work the Father wants us to do. That's how we can apply it. And the last one, we'll wrap it up with this with prayer, um, is prayer. Just talking to God. If you're confused about the texts and you've gone through some study methods, you've looked up the verses before, the verses after, and it still doesn't make sense to you, or you don't quite know how to apply it, or maybe you do know how to apply it, but you're afraid to, just talk to God. Pray to him. Ask him to reveal to you what the scriptures mean. And I think he will come through. I think the Holy Spirit will teach us everything we need to know. And I have a lot, a lot of notes, if anyone is curious, if anyone is skeptical about the Bible. I wanted to make a big point of this, but maybe next time. Of defending the Bible's inerrancy, defending that we can trust the Bible is authoritatively the Word of God. So if there's any of you in this congregation, I'm sorry I didn't get to it, but if you're wondering and if you're doubting and if you're like, no, Donald, I don't trust the Word of God. Like, There's a bunch of things I don't agree with in the Bible. I read the Old Testament. I throw that stuff out. Please come talk to me or come talk to Pastor Travis, Pastor Bob. I'm sure we can give you a couple, couple pieces of advice to think about. All right, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for giving us the Holy Scriptures. We thank you for giving us your word. God, we stand alone in the word of God. We stand alone in the Bible. We trust you. Uh, every word that comes out of your mouth is holy, just, and true. It's like a precious metal that's been refined seven times, Lord. It's pure, pure than anything else that we can have. We take you at your word, we trust you, and we apply scripture into our lives. And as the Bible said, all scripture is inspired by God, profitable for us to teach, for us to rebuke, for us to train others so that we can handle every good work that you require of us. And Lord, I pray that we do that in our life groups. I pray that we do that in our homes. I pray that we do that in a youth group. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.